Scrum. Howard Days, 2022. Robert E. Howard in 1932. This recording, presented by the Chromecast, is from Friday, June 10th. The panelists discuss the 90th anniversaries of Conan, Worms of the Earth, the poem Samaria, plus other notable Howard events of the year. Panelists include Rusty Burke, Patrice Lunay, Deuce Richardson, and Paul Salmon. The panel is moderated by Bobby Derry. All right, everyone, welcome to the Robert E. Howard in 1932 panel. I'm Bobby Deary, and around me are some of the best and brightest of Howard's scholarship and criticism. Rusty Burt, Patrice Louinet, Mr. Paul Salmon, and Deuce Richards. So thank you all for coming. I'm going to make this very quick because I'm only the moderator and everybody else is supposed to talk. <laughs> Robert E. Howard started his pulp career in 1925, and after seven years of grinding away at the typewriter, he was still writing more than he was selling, but he was selling. He was selling to action stories, to fight stories, to weird tales, and to strange tales of mystery and terror. And while we consider 1932 the birthday of Conan the Sumerian, because he came out with his first story in The Phoenix and the Sword in December, 1932 was also a very critical year that was leading up to the creation of Robert E. Howard um, and Conan the Barbarian. Because the first Conan story was not Conan the Sumerian, it was Conan the Reaver. If you were in New York or Los Angeles or Providence or Chicago or Brownwood, and you went to the newspaper stand and picked up Strange Tales of Mystery and Terror, for June 1932, you would see The People of the Dark by Robert E. Howard with Conan the Reaver. And that was a character that he was developing on his way to become Conan the Sumerian. And that really starts out very early in the year with after he finished Worms of the Earth, he had a vacation down to the south of Texas, to Mission, Texas, and Rusty, would you like to talk about that? Patrice is better qualified to talk about that particular. Well, I'm going to actually go uh, further down the road than that and uh, go back to August 1930 when uh, Howard went to uh, Dolph, mentioned Dolph Valley for the first time. It is the uh, area where we grew up. And then he actually went there. And it was during those two moments that he started writing his first tales dealing with reincarnation. And the theme of reincarnation plays a huge part in the story which Bobby just mentioned, People of the Dark, and the uh, poem Simeria, which we're going to uh, discuss in a, in a bit. So uh, he first wrote a tale called Children of the Night in 1930, dealing with reincarnation, and the next big tale dealing with the same theme was, uh, was uh, People of the Dark starring, featuring this character named Conan of the Reavers. And this is the, it's not a um, Ivorian story, it's a story of a modern 
uh, era character who suddenly finds himself uh, transported back to uh, the Roman times and he discovers that he is actually become this uh, guy named Conan. An Irish pirate. Yeah. An Irish reaver. Yeah. The theme of reincarnation is the biggie here and kind of unites all the things that we're talking about because uh, most of you probably read the poem Samaria, right? What are the first two words? I remember. I remember. And all the, everything else, all the other stories, they're all memory stories, <coughs> racial memory. And right after the Hyborian starts creating the Hyborian stuff, he tells Lovecraft in March that he's started a story of working on a new story of another age uh, and of a time when Texas was a series of steps down to the Gulf of Mexico. It, it turns out it's Marchers of Valhalla, another racial memory story. So, yeah, that's a good one to start with because it's a big theme for all of 1932's work. Yeah, late 1931, now 1932, yeah. yes. By this time, uh, Robert E. Howard had been corresponding with H.P. Lovecraft for about two years. And Robert E. Howard had begun to write Cthulhu Mythos stories, stories which he referenced some of Lovecraft's creations and in which Lovecraft then referenced his. Uh, one of them, the Blackstone, hit actual hard copy publication in Grim Death, part of the British Not at Night series in 1932. But he also worked in Cthulhu Mythos references to the first draft of The Phoenix on the Sword and Worms of the Earth. Uh, Patrice, why don't you tell us a little bit about Worms? So Worms was written around October or November 1931, and it's uh, a very dark story. Uh, it tells the story of uh, Brian McMahon, who is passing off as a Potham uh, and Potham and Potham, if I remember yeah, correctly, and who is the witness to the execution of one of his uh, subjects, and he decides to take revenge on Titus Sola, who is the Roman governor of the region. And in order to do that, he wants to reach the worms of the earth, which are creatures dealing underground, and they are uh, horrible creatures. And to do that, he has to uh, get in touch with them, and this uh, means he has to uh, find a woman in Atla who knows how to reach them. And, and I don't know if I'm going to, to spoil the story, <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, if, as if this was not grisly enough, I mean, as the tale goes on, it gets darker and darker, and it's a very, probably one of the darkest tales he ever wrote. And it is effectively the end of the Bram McMorton stories. It is, yes, it's the end, and after that he couldn't write about Bram McMorton anymore. Right. He also mentioned to Lovecraft that it was the first time he'd actually written a Pictish story with a Pictish voice because all the other Bram McMorn stories had been told from some other perspective. It was some outsider coming to Pictum. He had never spoken as a Pict. But, uh, Which again sends us back to the theme of reincarnation. Yeah. Uh, Robert Howard tried very hard to do a serious character for Weird Tales and for others. And for other magazines, he succeeded. Sailor Steve Costigan was already having his stories in fight stories at the time. But he tried Solomon Kane, he tried Bran McMorin, he really couldn't get a long, ongoing, serious character for Weird Tales until he hit Conan. 
Um, Mr. Salmon, you know something about Conan. Do you want to talk about his start? Uh, hi. Um, yeah, I know something about Conan. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the book that I wrote um, for Dark Horse. Um, and it actually came out in French, and I did not know that. They oh, it did? Yeah, yeah. So those guys owe me some money. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure we'll see that. Yeah, good luck. Um, but no, um, you know, my history, uh, the first Conan story I wrote, uh, wrote, read was when I was nine years old in 1959 in a little tiny Navy base in the Philippines called Sangley Point. And uh, it was Red Nails. And it was right up in the children's section. <laughs> so my mind was warped at a young age. And uh, that was one of the springboards for me into uh, fantasy and horror literature and science fiction. And uh, anyway, it's a long story. But I kept up with the character and with the Howard um, Oblivion for many years to the resurgence in the last decade or so, 15 years, which is just fantastic. He's finally been taken seriously. Um, but, you know, in a larger context, 1932, imagine what the Depression was like here. <coughs> you know, I mean, we right now are in a, in a time of social and global unrest, but for the United States in 1932, is only three years after the start market crash. And you have people out here who are barely subsisting, and, you know, a lot of that was self-reliance. And so I think um, one of the reasons, and it's obvious, why all of the material that Howard wrote for the Pulps. And the Pulps were interesting because they were working man's television, really, in a way. People used to read for recreation, as opposed to plop down and watch, you know, The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, right? And um, I think the escapist aspect of Howard sometimes has, uh, I mean, that's where we all start. He takes us into completely different worlds that are so richly detailed and so historically uh, almost fanatically accurate, at least up to the point where the research was available in the 1930s. But I see Robert Howard in this town all the time because I grew up on this Sangley point I mentioned was one, one mile long and a quarter mile wide, and it had 1,200 people. And most of those were planes going up and down all the time. And I grew up around all kinds of small towns. And so I know the small town mentality. And for him to have persevered and to be cocky and dress up in his flamingo outfits and walk around downtown and all this and have that kind of gumption, to me, I think, is just not only fascinating but commendable. And I think that it's not only the energy of the stories, it's not only the fantasy worlds that he weaves, it's not only the hard-edged uh, realism even though they're dealing with sorcerers and giant serpents and you know seductive witches, um, the escapist value at that particular period from 32 to 36, when Conan was you know being written, um, I think had an enormous impact on everyone. And I think there was a lot of jealousy in this town. I do. I think that was all also evident. Other people on this panel know more about that. Yeah, Howard. In 1932, Howard made about $2,500, which doesn't sound like much to us, but it's the equivalent of about 27000 today. But this is, again, remember the height of the Depression. So very, very few people were making much more than absolute subsistence wages. He had, he, it was, he was really the peak of his writing career. Yeah. My father worked during the Depression, and he got a dollar a day. Yeah. That was for growing beard, working for Sutter. 
Sundown. Yeah. yeah, both of my parents uh, were born in the 20s, and uh, they had they told me that long ago, <clears throat> but they told me stories. They told my, my my mom told me a story of a guy in a business suit carrying an attaché case standing in line to get apples, free apples. That's how bad it was. <coughs> <clears throat> oh, about the depression? I mean, no, 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 about Howard. <laughs> 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 I mean, my grandfather was born in 22 and stuff like that and everything, and it was bad times. You had the Dust Bowl as well. You had the Dust Bowl as well. It was making things even worse around here. Didn't Howard say they were burning spines off of cacti in order to feed them the cattle? As a little bit later, but yes, uh, it was very hard times all around, and Weird Tales would have very hard times the next year. Their bank would have a bank holiday and never return. <laughs> so that wiped out all of Weird Tales savings, but that was in the future. Uh, in 1932, things were looking a little rosy because he put out some of his best stories. The Horror from the Mound came out in Weird Tales in May. Worms of the Earth came out in November. Phoenix on the Sword came out in December. Uh, Deuce, what can you tell us about, what's your favorite story from Robert E. Howard in 1932? Oh, I mean, it would probably have to be Worms of the Earth, though I think there's things about Phoenix on the Sword that maybe aren't as appreciated by some, whatever, but it's a great story as well. But Worms of the Earth, I mean, I just reread it yesterday just to get polished up on it. And it's just, the prose is just great. Poetic, I mean, the way he puts everything together. Just the scene of the crucifixion and getting into Brand McMoran's mind as he's sitting there watching. Having to watch. You, you can feel uh, about all the stories and, and even the poem he wrote during this time, but the, those times are gloomy ones because if you read the poem Cimmeria, it's, it's uh, the land of darkness and the night. It's not very cheery. And the worms of the earth is this... Uh, horror story I was mentioning earlier, and then Simira is the story, uh, Simira, uh, Phoenix on the Salt, sorry. Uh, you have the beginning with the Median Chronicles, and it's the story of a reaver, a slayer, a killer. It's very dark. The beginning of the, uh, and the, the first, uh, in the first draft of the story, you have this scene where Conan is in drinking because he wants to forget Simiria. So all of that uh, makes for a very dark moment in maybe in Howard's life. Bobby mentioned the horror on the mound, which is from the mound, which is one of my favorite Howard stories, and it's one of the earliest stories that he said in the local area, and using his his own background, uh, and it's pretty dark too. It's got a, it starts with, I mean, it's it's about a cowboy who quit cowboy and to buy his own ranch, just as the depression hits and he's gone bust, and so now he's going to dig up this mound for treasure and. I don't think everybody really appreciates how much effort the Phoenix and the Sword represents. Because you have to remember this, a lot of people have the impression that Robert E. Howard just, Conan spoke through him and he just sat there in front of the typewriter and came off in one go. And that was not the case. Robert E. Howard took a lot of care with his stories. He developed a lot of technical skill and professional skill when it came to writing because first he'd do a synopsis 
and then he'd do a draft, and then he'd revise the draft, and he might revise the draft a third time before sending it out. And then once it came back, he'd revise it again and send it out again and revise it again, and he'd keep going. The Phoenix of the Sword started out as a tale of King Cole. And Patrice, you know all about that. Yeah. <laughs> I do think. Uh, so which is, well, that was no synopsis for uh, Phoenix because it started out as a King Cole story. And we know of one draft, but we know that uh, there was at least another one which has been lost. And so this was written in mid-1929 and in uh, February 1932 when Howard had the idea of Conan, he decided to salvage this story and rewrite it. And he went through uh, four different drafts before he was satisfied with it and sent it to, to Weird Tales, which asked for subsequent rewrites. So there was a lot of effort and care which went into the crafting of the first Conan story. And I guess that's about it. What's interesting is uh, I'm fourth generation Irish on both sides. And uh, my entire childhood was steeped in Irish lore and legend and pride. And we, uh, as a family, very much celebrated anything that was green. Uh, we weren't orange Irish. And um, I think, you know, for someone who stayed here in Texas for most of his life and only had access to literature, as someone who has traveled to the UK extensively and finally got to Ireland to spend some time in 2019 to go to see some of the birthplace of my ancestors. He nailed it. It's unbelievable. The descriptions, I mean, the, the cragginess, the, uh, the primeval age that you feel in certain parts, particularly you go up in the northwest of Ireland, uh, up where, near where they shot Game of Thrones. And um, you just, it's, it's, it's raw. It's raw, it's gray, it's, it's sleety, the winds are cold and bitter, and all of that seeped into everything Celtic that came out through the Conan stories, and also the horror stories. I was a huge fan of those as well. I mean, I had all those uh, uh, no press books collected by 1968, I think it was. I had to replace a couple of them because they were so cheaply printed. Um, but it just always amazed me that Howard was able to be so diligent and recreate a place that he had never been to. Um, another genre that we don't often talk about here on these panels because we focus so much on Conan and the weird tales is Oriental stories. And uh, 1932 was also a big year for Oriental stories for Robert E. Howard. Oriental stories, if anybody doesn't know, was a spin-off of weird tales. They had thought to create two new magazines, one of which happened, Oriental stories, and one of which did not, called Strange Stories. And Robert E. Howard really found his groove with Oriental stories because he'd always wanted to write for adventure magazine and he wanted to write historical action adventure fiction. But the research was always a big hang up for him because he had so few resources for historical knowledge and he didn't have the first hand account of far distant places that adventure magazine really wanted. And what he could do with Oriental stories was use his imagination to create historical stories of the kind he wanted, of the kind that he would go on to develop with the Conan stories. Um, 
Did you, you know, want to say yeah, something about that too? The whole thing with with the Ivorian age is that it relieved him of having to do all of that research. Yeah. <laughs> he, could, he could take all of history and jumble it together and take any part of it he wanted and mix them together. You could have, what in the Black Stranger, you got Elizabethan pirates and Picts, and, you know, Iroquois, and you got all kinds of stuff thrown together. Just a no reader's reaction. Oh, you used this gun in the such and such story. This was yeah. not invented until 16 years later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the, as far as as far as the, the setting though, I mean that's that's the thing. I mean, some people do point out that like somehow the caravels are are um, you know anachronistic in the Ivorian age, but they never say anything about the Kozaki or Cossacks are exactly the same time. Some Every, people don't know their history that well. Everything, everything in the Ivorian age is anachronistic. <laughs> yeah, right. Or nothing. Yeah, and it doesn't fit. But yeah, it, it was perfect playground. But that man loved his Middle Ages. So I, I personally think that the Oriental stories are among his very, very best writing. I think if you haven't read Robert E. Howard's Oriental stories, which some people call Crusader adventures, but they're not all about Crusaders. Some of his really grittiest, best writing, uh, and it directly then leads because, again, of the, the fact that it takes so long to write one, it, that leads him to the creation of the Hyborian Age, and then we take off. We've got Conan, we've got Archers of Valhalla and the James Allison stories, we've got all kinds of stuff. Once he realizes he's liberated from the tyranny of history, he can use it, but he doesn't have to uh, slavishly adhere to it. I completely agree with the tall guy in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like his description of Tamerlane and Zengi, 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 I think maybe it is, but anyway, but for both of them, you see echoes of Conan later on, some of the same same phrasing that he used yeah. for coming to describe those barbaric conquerors and all that stuff. So, I mean, it was just a total test run. And people should read those stories. I, mean, I, just, I don't understand. But then again, there just seems to be something about a lot of people that read fantasy just don't read historicals. They just don't go. It's too bad. Um, there's a good book I'm reading. Uh, I wish I could remember the title, um, but it's called America, the 11 Americas, speaking of history, that everyone now thinks we have sort of like red state, blue state. We don't. We literally historically have 11 different Americas in one nation, in this republic. And if I can find it, it's on my Kindle, I'll tell you about it later. But the history of this particular part of the world is really interesting because you see it coming out again in his writing. You see the cultural influences of the people who settled here. Um, to jump really quickly, because we were talking about history and darkness and things like that, and I'm gonna get into this tomorrow, at the Conan uh, uh, the, uh, Barbarian film uh, that I worked on. Um, but the guy who directed it and wrote it is a historian, first and foremost. John Milius, the director, was someone who had a lifelong passion for military and what we call quote unquote ancient and middle age history. His problem was he didn't like fantasy, <laughs> which did not make him you know, ideal for that particular project. But you know, uh, 40 years ago, uh, we, did, they did, we made the film, we, uh, but Milius was always trying to be historically accurate in the way that he mixed all the cultures on the screen. Now there's a lot of people who have problems with film because it's not true to the essence of the stories and so forth. 
But if you just look at it uh, visually, if you just look at the chromatic palette that he painted with in that film, you will see all of these different cultures and all of these different histories. And that came directly from John Neely's to the production designer, Ron Cobb, who in turn had in his art department a guy named Bill Stout, William Stout, who is now quite famous. And they all went back and went to the libraries in Spain and in Los Angeles and just pulled picture book out of picture book of Chinese culture, Arabian culture, um, Vietnamese culture, all this kind of stuff. And so they were actually being, in a strange way, faithful to the spirit of a lot of the Howard literature. One of the events that we don't often think about with Robert Howard in 1932 was the death of Henry S. Whitehead. Henry S. Whitehead was a fellow weird tailor who Robert E. Howard had been corresponding with for some little years and he'd fallen into ill health and he finally passed away in November in 1932. And Robert H. Barlow, who is a young fan and a correspondent of H.P. Lovecraft, wrote to all of Whitehead's correspondents saying, I want to create a selected letters for Henry S. Whitehead. Could you send me your letters? And Robert Howard did. And unfortunately, because of that, we don't have any of Robert Howard's letters to Whitehead or any of Whitehead's letters to Robert Howard. Uh, because Whitehead's papers were put into a real mess after his death, and some of them were destroyed and finally lost. And the Whitehead letters to Robert Howard were with Barlow, which were again lost. But I want to emphasize how important correspondence was in Robert e. Howard's life in 1932 because that was his lifeline to people outside of Cross Plains. I mean, we, we normally talk about H.P. Lovecraft as his big pulp correspondent, but he wasn't the only one. He talked to E. Hoffman Price, and by the end of the year, he was corresponding with August Trelev. And did you guys want to talk about his letters in 1932? Well, I was just going to say that uh, back in the days before you could get a book of collected letters, I was getting copies from Glenn Lord and, and things that had been printed, I was copying them. And I was creating loosely binders of Robert E. Howard's letters. And 1932 is the only year that had two binders. It was a really big correspondence year. But yeah, I was wondering about the Whitehead when you brought him up because I just read like uh, the Barlow letters to Lovecraft and everything and I, you started mentioning that I, I've had the, the collected letters you know, for a long time with Howard's and it's like yeah there's no Whitehead there and that would explain it it's too bad but it, as far as the lifeline you're talking about I mean we still got it I mean you know I made it down here in 2006 because of being on the old Howard forum and stuff like that you know, there's still sort of the same thing going on as far as, you know, because even in, you know, bigger towns, you don't necessarily have a whole bunch of people around that have the same interests as you do, so. Right. Now we definitely have that. 1932 was also the year when he started feeling more confident in his letters to Lovecraft, because at first it was, oh, dear Mr. Lovecraft, and Emily apologized for, you know, because I'm just uh, this humble writer from Texas. In 1932, it became Dear HPL. So he was really starting to become his own person. He was, he was starting to be able to debate Lovecraft on his own terms. And that led to some very interesting questions, debates, which would take them to, to the death, to 
It's Boston. not until 1935 you get Howie, you ignorant slut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in my 20s, I, was, I, I sought out a lot of my uh, literary heroes, and they were still with us at that time. And uh, that would include people like Richard Matheson, um, Theodore Sturgeon, Harlan Ellison, even 4E.G. Ackerman, <laughs> kind of the joke in the day. But Bob Locke and I became quite good friends uh, because he was one of the sweetest, kindest guys you would ever met, he and his wife. And uh, he lived, I remember, uh, I know exactly where he lived off Mulholland Drive in a small little house that he said had been bought for him by Straight Jacket. If anybody ever saw that movie with Joan Crawford, that Bob Locke wrote. And uh, I knew that he had corresponded with Lovecraft, of course, voluminously and with everybody else. And I also knew he famously did not like Conan, that he thought Conan was just like this cardboard, you know, cut out, blood, bloodthirsty, you know, wench raping fool, you know. And uh, I asked him about his correspondence with Howard, and I said, did, oh, did you ever guys ever try to? And he said, well, I think, I think I did receive a letter or two, but it was mostly an angry, you know, response to what I had said in print about Conan the Cluck, or whatever it was, yeah. And uh, so, um, within that circle, Bob Locke was also highly prolific in terms of the writing of and it's interesting you brought up Henry S. Whitehead because if anyone can find the Arkham House books that collect this fiction, uh, you'll see um, the current thread. You'll see, I mean, you know, not, nothing exists in a vacuum. So whatever the context was in that period of time, in popular literature, in pulp literature, in pop culture, it's also in Whitehead. It's just they had different voices and way of expressing it. I always feel we're all sort of as a tribe, a global tribe, and we're all sort of on the same wavelength, but then it fractures off like it goes through a prism and it goes through our own culture. And Whitehead, I thought that was really nice that you brought him up because I, I personally liked his stuff. I've got a couple of volumes of his as well. Block redeemed himself a little bit much later with his introduction to which deuce was uh, it was Black, Black Stone or something yeah, like that. Black, Black Cannon. Yeah. Which one? Black Cannon, I guess it was. Black Cannon. No, that was. Anyway, one of the bands of paperbacks has an introduction by Robert Block. Yeah, yeah. Where yeah. he says, I had the, all these bad things to say about Conan, but I didn't mean that to apply to all of Howard's work. I really liked, from Solomon Kane, for instance, I really liked other stories of his. Yeah, and he said his prose, you know, had true poetry in it and all that stuff. He also said he was kind of inspirational a bit in his own work, Bob said to me. Yeah. Oh, Block, as far as Whitehead wrote, yeah. Block wrote some sort of sorcery. Oh, of course. Yeah. I yeah. mean, uh, the, the Black Island or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, he had, he, had a, he had a total hatred of druids. I mean, it really can't... can't <laughs> I'm sorry, read his stories. You really can't trace it back to, like, Lovecraft. Lovecraft was fairly... You know, neutral on him and everything. But if you read Block's stories, and he's got it has druids as these utterly evil villains in every single time he mentions them. But I will say, Black Lotus, I mean, I've done engram searches on Black Lotus, and it pretty much starts with Howard, that that term. Other than there's a, something that isn't even a lotus, I think it's called Black Lotus from like the Azores or something. Uh, but, but Howard made that term up, and it started being used. There's a, there was like a, a, a Fu Manchu type of pulp villain that had his own magazine. There's a Black Lotus story in that from like 1934, 35. I've got it, and out of Altus Press or whatever. But no, 
he wrote that Lotus, Black Lotus story, and I mean, it looks like it's sort of set like right at the post, I, you know, cataclysm Hyborian age, like at the end, it could be inserted right in there around Bendy or whatever. And then Black Lotus he's using is Howard's Black Lotus right there. He was inspired by Howard right during the exact same time. Uh, the Druids, um, we have historians here. Who was the name of the Roman uh, senator or general who started the propaganda campaign against the Druids because they had too much political power? Are you thinking of Julius Caesar? No, no, it is, no. I, I, I came across this in my research. Uh, I told you I was highly Celtic. And there is a genuine moment in Roman history when they're having a problem with, you know, those people with their bottoms painted blue that just won't give up. The Druids were not the bloodthirsty uh, uh, picture that we mostly see today. Yes, the Irish were involved in the slave trade far beyond, you know, people uh, think. And yes, the Druids did have a tendency to throw live people in the fires, but that was all part of the spring ritual. But they were also the, <laughs> yeah, the spring ritual. <laughs> Thank you, lotto number. Um, but but the druids were actually quite popular, and they were the keeper of knowledge. They were the equivalent of the medieval monks who were in there doing the illuminated manuscripts. The druids were quite educated and quite politically powerful. And there is a moment, and I wish I thought maybe someone might know this, but there was. Would it be Suetonius Paulinus? Suetonius Paulinus. Paulinus. He was the general who fought Boudicca. Right. Yeah, could be. And then they, then they, they went to Mona. Yeah. Mona. Yeah. That's yeah. actually the block story, the Black Isle. That's the deal. Right. The soldier, they're slaughtering evil druids everywhere. But but it's so it's so contemporary. There was literally a mounted propaganda campaign to make the druids into the other, you know, the evil other, and because it was for political gain, they wanted to have some of the population behind them because a lot of the population loved the druids. The druids kept order. Uh, let me bring this back to about the 1932 for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I got a point here, I got a point here. Robert E. Howard had two different approaches to druids in his own fiction. Um, he could have the druids as bloody-handed priests in some of the Bram McMorrin stories, but he could also have them as being very white and regal and patriarchal, and he was getting that from the Tabalmundi, the Trolls from Samothrace, because Children of the Night, which was written around this time, has a druid in it, does it not? Little people, the, the little, little people. people. Yeah, that's a very you know, admirable druid. But if you're talking about Gunnar, he's no druid. No, not I'm not talking about Gonar, but they mention druids in that uh, story. Yeah, Cormac Nocturnox says, you know, his own druids, you know, had some wacky stuff going on, but he seemed to think what Gonar was doing was worse. Yeah. But druids are also mentioned in Worms of the Earth because they talk about how the Blackstone used to be at Stonehenge, and everybody thought that the druids had reared Stonehenge, and like, no, no, this is far older and stranger and weirder. And that was very typical of Robert E. Howard and pulps in general in the 1930s, was sort of recontextualizing history a little bit. To take what you thought you knew and make it a little stranger, a little more fantastic, a little darker, a little more four-colored. Um, as much as we talk about the moral ambiguity in some of his stories, 
he really likes to build up the conflicts before more than just the personal. Um, when we talk about the Phoenix on the sword, we've got Conan and Thothamon on two separate narrative tracks, but they come into collision, and in the way they come into that collision, it becomes about more than just the two of them. It's about what is kingship, what does it mean for him to be a barbarian on the throne, what is, he's fighting for civilization now. Did you want to talk about that, Patrice, anything? Uh, I was uh, uh, thinking about what you said earlier, about the, the Druids and, the, and the, the Romans and the Picts and the, and the Celt barbarians. And I remember when I first read their stories, I was, yeah, that's normal to be against Rome. Because, you know, I'm a Frenchman, and everyone in France says, we don't like the Romans, we're Gauls. And uh, but it took me uh, a few years before discovering that uh, here in the States, it was Talbot Mundi who was the first popular writer who wrote stories in which the Romans were the evil dudes and the barbarians were the heroes. And it's exactly what Howard did a few years later, but Mundi was first in that respect. So what was that may have been surprising for an American reader never was for the French reader that I was. Uh, while we're talking about Conan and Samaria, Rusty, did you want to talk more about the poem Samaria and how that came to be written? Well, again, Patrice is more of the expert on how things came to be written. Uh, my thinking is uh, based on having discovered in Plutarch's lives, you get a lot of stuff that shows up in the poem Samaria. So I really think that Howard had somehow or another discovered Plutarch's lives, particularly what was his name? Uh, okay. Gaius, Gaius Marius. 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 Yeah. He wrote a poem called um, The Golden the Gray or Echoes from, he, said, he also alternately called it Echoes from an Iron Harp, uh, that was essentially just based on the story of. Marius versus the uh, Cimbri, and um, then that kind of leads to the poem Samaria to, actually no, he writes Samaria and the Golden the Grey roughly in the same time. Right? Yeah, roughly yeah. the same time, yes. So this guy, this well, guy has so deeply studied the uh, typescripts and the order of the thing that I feel embarrassed even trying <laughs> yes. to talk about it and sit next to him, so go. <laughs> uh, well, the, the writing chronology is a bit difficult because all these things were written just within a few days and weeks apart. So, but uh, there's a letter to Lovecraft from early March 1932 in which you have the, the poem The Golden the Grey, in which he mentions having written the very first few Conan tales. But we know that the first tales had been written in February and that he was in the south of the states in January. So all that was within a span of a few of a few weeks, really. But we don't know whether he thought of Cimmeria first and, Con and then Conan or the other way around. We have no way of knowing that, really. But it was really just, I mean, within a few weeks of everything was written in sequence almost. So I know you think, I know that you think that uh, the description of Samaria and the description of Dark Valley are all yes, kind of wrapped uh, up. Yes, that, I mean, we're going to get into <laughs> complicated territory to, to go there. So yes, I think that the, uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the panel that uh, for me it all started with the apparition of the theme of reincarnation in August 1930 and then in October 1931 when he went to Dark Valley for the first time since his childhood. 
And uh, for him, Dark Valley is this very sinister region. There's a poem titled The Dweller in Dark Valley. And if you read it, the imagery is really similar to what you can read in Sumeria. So there's obviously a link, there was obviously a link in Howard's mind between Dark Valley, the place where he was born, and Sumeria, which is the land of darkness and the night. And uh, all that, if you read the Conan story, if you, if you think of Sumeria as the opening chapter of the Conan stories, is the first one and the only one in which you have a character who remembers the theme of reincarnation. And so after he remembers, the modern day, the modern day sorry, narrator disappears. So he disappears from history and then you create the Iborian age. If you want me to go even deeper than that, if you were talking about people of the, um, of the dark, the two modern day characters are named John O'Brien and I uh, forget the other one's name, Richard, Richard Brent. And those two characters disappear in favor of Conan. So the two BR characters become Conan and Worms of the Earth is the last Branmac monster who is a BR character who becomes Conan. And I guess I'm going to stop there because I've lost everyone. <laughs> <laughs> there was something else that happened very early in 1932 that I just don't see how it didn't affect. Affect as far as Conan and, and the Allison stories, and that would be the publication of Dwellers in the Mirage from A. Marion. From there, you have a guy, modern guy, all of a sudden he starts ex experiencing at the point of being taken over possessed by the ancient soul of his basically this ancient Nordic king who's sinister who's who's much much nastier guy than, than the modern Leif what's his name and and also you've got you've got these ancient Nordics that were way before Vikings and everything else that had crossed over into North America Right around the time he's right, you know, this is before Marshall, Marshall's of Valhalla, this is before Phoenix on the Sword. And you have, and, and for that matter, you've got a magic ring in, in Dwellers and Mirage. And uh, and so there's a lot of remembering going on. And it's this period you got these civilizations and everything that gods with different names like Zarda and everything else all going on. This is a proto Hyborian age right there that came out a month before he created Conan. And we know he read it pretty much. So there you go. Uh, I find merit unreadable. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Moon Pool, too, right? Yes, the, the Moon Pool. Yeah, yeah, I, was, I think that was the first one I read by him. Um, but we're talking about reincarnation and, um, you know, uh, going back to prior lives. Again, something that was in the air. Um, there's a town in Florida called Casadega, which is about a half an hour drive from where my wife and I live. And it is the spiritualist camp. Has anyone heard of Casadega? It was on an X-Files episode, yeah. Um, and I, I, I go there every now and then just to be amused because they're so strident in their spiritualism. But they were literally driven out of another city in the 1920s in Florida and covered wagon. They didn't even have a car. They have, they have photos of the first people that, that started this. And you walk up and down the streets, and all the houses are filled with spiritualists of some kind. And Madame Bled I can never pronounce her name, Blatowski? Blatowski. Yeah, right, yeah. Blavatsky. Yeah, Blavatsky. She, you know, was instrumental in a lot of this 
thinking. I mean, you know, not only uh, table tapping and, you know, the other world, but also reincarnation was very big. And they believe very much down there in reincarnation. Well, she's the creator of the theosophy, which, of course, Talbot Bundy was an inherent. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you go to Casadega, and, and first, I hadn't been there in a month or two, and there's a woman who works in the gift shop that I know, and I said, how have you been? And she goes, well, it's been a sad time because of all the people who passed in COVID. But that good news is that they come to us so they can speak to the relatives again. And I really had to bite my tongue. <laughs> uh, we've, we've got a few minutes left. Let's start an argument. Right. <laughs> who thinks, in the Horde of the Mound, who thinks that the Dracula film was a major influence on that story? Could have been. But I don't think so. I think the novel might have been. The novel is what I was going to I just yeah. reread the novel recently. Because uh, in. Uh, I forget which time is that. You have uh, Dracula, the novel, references in some stories which were written at the time, trying to remember the exact reference. There's the, um, the Hound of the Ring and the other one. I mean, in, oh, the Blackstone. In Blackstone. Uh, he mentions Stregoi Kavar, I don't know how it's supposed to be pronounced, and that's a lift from Bram Stoker. Mm -hmm. But exactly like Don Vasquez or whatever his name is, he's able to withstand sunlight, just like Dracula is in the novel. You know? And there's the sea voyage and everything else, but, but yeah, that's very much a, a Stoker vampire as opposed to the vampire. There's a lot of people that I think it's way, more, it's way more a transplantation of the Victorian Empire to American soil. He's doing in that story what you would do a year and a half later with the Conan story. Take something which is continental and make it American and Texan here. And you have the exact same thing with Conan, where we took American, uh, sorry, European and continental fantasy and it turned it into something which is distinctly American. So for me, it's not a continuation, it's on the contrary. Uh, breaking with uh, former traditions. There was a very amusing letter in Weird Tales after the uh, Horrors from the Mound was published, in which a guy said that Howard had broken what was no fewer than three accepted rules, rules of vampire lore. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to agree with uh, Patrice. I think maybe, but more likely, Anne. I think it's Stoker. Um, you know, in, uh, how many people have read Dracula's Guest? You know, which is the uh, sequel yeah exactly and um, you know he was a uh, omnivorous um, he read he read quite a bit he did go to the movies as we all know I, I, when he saw King Kong I think he rarely ever I, I feel like he rarely ever took a stereotype sort of uh, supernatural character or whatever and just used that he always gave it some kind of twist of his own yeah, or you yeah, start so, writing the tale. Such yeah. a fertile match. Can I just say one thing real quick? Yeah. We talked so much about Phoenix on the Sword in 1932, and I don't know if you can see it, but this is the cover of the December 32 Weird Tales with the first Conan in it. And it's an Alan St. John cover as opposed to a Margaret Bondage, oh, excuse me, Margaret yeah. Brundage <laughs> cover. And uh, it, if you look at it, it, it really it. doesn't have a lot to do <laughs> with it. It illustrates a climb story, right? Yeah, it's a, it does. It illustrates the artist's climb. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the thing people don't realize. Like they ran these. stuff like Sword and Planet and stuff exactly. like that. Yeah, Alberic wasn't the only Sword and Planet that appeared in Weird Tales. Yeah. We've got a few minutes left. Do we have any questions from the audience? John. 
Why do you think Howard focused on Samaria and Samaria as the place for Conan's birth? Because historically, the Samarians really didn't have much to do at all with the Romans. And they were, I think, mainly mentioned by Herodotus and the Greeks. He did, he did, you remember in a letter to Lovecraft, he did some mental gymnastics to try to connect the Cimbri, the Cimmeria, the, and, so, and actually he gets that a little bit from Plutarch. But why did he make the, why did he focus so much? Because, because it was Dark Valley. It was Dark Valley, and if you uh, read That's where it, he was born. That's where he was born. If you read all the kind of stories, you will notice one thing. There is no other Cimmerian mention ever in any of the stories. And Conan is the only Cimmerian there is in those stories. So it, I guess it says something about the character in the whole series. Howard is familiar with the Irish Lever de Balta, which the Book of Conquest, and that has the Gales coming from Scythia. And the Sumerians were the direct predecessors to that. He's taken them back one generation into very, at that time, little known people. Now we know they were more ironic, you know, Indo ironic people, but that, he could have totally explain that by saying that part of the Sumerians that were left got mixed in with somebody else. But the pure Sumerians that were there went, and the, there's actually some now genetic history and stuff like that tracing along the Mediterranean. And perhaps the Book of Conquest isn't completely and totally wrong. Guess wise, whatever. We also have to remember that some of that was an afterthought because the, the, the Iberian Age wasn't written until after he had written three kind of stories. And if you read the Phoenix and the Sword, the very first draft, he didn't swear by Crom, but by Emin. So the Celtic thing is, was there, but it was not what it became after, and after he had written the Iberian Age, where, where it retroactively became a Celtic series. Other questions? It is. Yeah. Any other questions, please? Yes. What was going on in Howard's life in late 32 when he's writing this really dark stuff, like personally? What was, was anything um, going on with him? Well, it wasn't, late 1932 is when it was published. Okay. It was written earlier. Uh, so late 1931 was when he came back, when he went to Dog Valley for the first time again. So that's really kind of what put it I mean, that's my theory. I don't have kind of proved that, but. The state of mind of Robert E. Howard has been one of endless discussion and analysis. And uh, I think the scholarship and research that people like Rob and Therese and Rusty have done have really uncovered the layers of what made that man tick. But ultimately, who was there with him? You know, Who sat there while he was in the heat with his mother being so ill and the father away all the time and having to, to, to write letters and say, how about paying me for that last story? And you know, he might have made money, but you know, he was under a lot of stress. And remember, he started talking about suicide very early. So I don't know, I wonder. You know, it was a good year for him professionally, but personally, what do you think? Well, 19, if we're talking 1932, that's, the suicide's four years away. Yeah, but he 1932, as Patrice was saying, uh, he's, in his letters to Lovecraft, he's showing a good deal more confidence in himself. He's, as a writer, I think he's really coming into his own. So I think 1932, personally and professionally for him, is a pretty good year. 
Where is why the darkness? Uh, I don't know. Is that when his mom starts to take a turn for the worse and her health starts getting really bad? Uh, it's because of the depression and money worries. I think there was a bank failure. And then he crossed planes right around. Maybe that's one of his ones. I so, think it was. But I don't, I don't know. Of course, he was Ryan Humorous. West, what he must westerns and boxing all through this time too. So I mean, oh and yeah, I've got uh, I printed out from my timeline. I printed out all the stuff that he'd written. You know, yeah. There, so there's all these funny poems and parodies and letters to to uh, Clyde Smith too. He's I mean Robert humor. Block was like this big joker his whole life and had a pretty good attitude the whole time. He's writing dark horror the whole time. So I mean you can't necessarily look at what was going on in somebody's life and say they wrote it because of that sometimes you can sometimes you can't yeah yeah bob lock a little known fact uh, he started his first professional writing for a vaudevillian team called stoop nagel and bud <laughs> and he did their jokes and they gave they, they i said how much did you get he said one dollar <laughs> yeah he was always joking I mean, he was known for that yeah he was a nice man all right, I think we have time for one more question. Does anybody have anything? Yes. Yes, the Lancer book, the bastardization done by Frank DeCamp and Ben Carter. What do you think about it? Personally? Is Gary uh, Romeo out here? details <laughs> <laughs> all the changes, and they ain't that many. The only story that significantly changed is the black stranger. There he goes. <laughs> There's your argument. Calling it bastardization is something a bastard would I think in 19... <laughs> Gary, the biggest bastardization is that those volumes have work. It's not by Robert E. Howard. That's the bastardization. I disagree. It was. I know. I know you disagree, Gary, yeah. but you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. In 1932, but Gary, I, I gotta say, I admire you for always jumping up and saying that in front of an audience. Like, <laughs> for the record, it was 57 minutes before that came up. <laughs> I look at the Lancers objectively. Now again, 1959 is my first phone story. 1965, the Lancers start. And the Lancers, to my way of thinking, no matter what you think, whether you're a purist or if you're the camp, you know, supporter or whatever, I happen to think that having known Sprague and his wife and having known Lynn Carter, I think it was purely a money move on their part, uh, but also mixed in with a great deal of fan passion, especially on Lynn's side. The bigger picture is that those Frazetta covers sold Conan to a whole new generation of kids. And that really kick-started. I, I, I see that as the first step of Conan into what we now think of nerd culture posture. Was the camp the art director at Lancer? I didn't realize that. <laughs> he hated that. No. He hated that. I know. For the, it was rhetorical. Larry, Larry Shaw got Frazetta because he was cheap. Uh, yeah, and cheap and fast. And right. he'd already done great work for Ace. Yeah. Did Frazetta make the Burroughs boom, though? I mean, that, that's the whole thing. I mean, good work. And, you know, the, the, the Ace, the Ace uh, Lord of the Rings. I mean, they had Jack Gone covers, you know, yeah. and they sold like crazy. Also, also keep in the, mind the, the monster fiction, shit. The fiction sold. Of said, course, of course, the fiction sold it. Uh, think of this generationally. The monster kids, as we're now called, are right in the middle of the big boom. You've got the monsters on TV. You have the Adams Family on TV. You've just gone through all of the big boom in comic books. And so it was a combination of people who were already TV-oriented, a generation, 
were reading comic books more than ever before, and they suddenly see that first comic cover with him standing on a heap of dead bodies with a half-naked slave girl, and you can't have a better image for a cis white straight guy in 1965. <laughs> all right, and with that, we're out of time. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you.